Welcome to Deep Tech 315. I'm Gene along with Doug, and our three topics this week are Microsoft's Ignite Developer Day. Second is OpenAI pausing the GPT Plus subscriptions. And third is Redwood Materials New Deal, new partnership with Toyota. And so Doug will jump right in with Microsoft Ignite. This is their annual uh, Developer's Day. Pretty fun stuff uh, to follow along. There was a lot in there. And my general thought was what first popped out to me was the announcement around silicon and at the uh, just before the event started. They talked about doing their own specific silicon, their own CPUs. And I think we knew this was coming. There were some reports about them building a chip. They've been working on a chip for, I believe it was four years, was the last report I saw. So uh, this shouldn't have been unexpected. We already know Google has TPUs, Amazon has inferentium and tranium chips. Uh, so it should be expected. And I think one thing that I've been saying uh, a lot as it relates to AI superpowers like a Microsoft, like an Amazon, like a Google, if you're a company that's really focused on AI and you have a market cap over $100 billion, you have to make your own chips. You have to look at designing your own chips because the efficiencies you get for building chips that are purpose-built to handle your algorithms will give you advantages. It will give you cost advantages. And so NVIDIA is great. doesn't mean they're going to get away from NVIDIA, but it does mean that they're going to build silicon specifically ta uh, tailored to the applications that they are running in the Azure data centers. So, yeah, there's the whole spectrum around chips. When you think about these data centers, this infrastructure, there's a lot there. As a recap, the way NVIDIA tells the story is that we've been a CPU-focused compute stack for the last 40, 50 years. We're going to move to GPUs. They're better suited for AI. But to build these infrastructures, you kind of need them both. And I believe Microsoft was these specific chips. They refer to them as CPUs. Is that correct? There were actually two chips. There was the Maya uh, 100. That was an AI accelerator chip. So that will be specifically for AI. And then they also had a chip that is a CPU that would, it would compete with more of like an Intel type product uh, where you're using CPUs in, in the data center instead of a GPU. So when I saw the announcement, I thought it makes sense. Like you said, is this has been rumored for these companies to be doing this, but it kind of lays the groundwork to Microsoft moving to a world where they don't do as much with NVIDIA and AMD. And I think that's a, that seemed like a reasonable takeaway five years from now, they're going to be doing less with AMD and Intel or AMD and uh, NVIDIA. Potentially. I think it's, it's going to be hard for them to get away from them entirely though. And I mean, you think about the structure of the conversation uh, for Satya Nadella's keynote, he talked about, AMD specifically talked about their MI300 chip, which is their new AI accelerator. Um, they'd said that they have that now running in Azure data centers, and they're going to be rolling it out more next year. And he also brought Jensen Wang on stage from NVIDIA. And so I think the partnerships are still really strong with NVIDIA and AMD. I think all of the hyperscalers do want to have their own chips to, yes, diversify some of their reliance on these big makers. But also, I think it comes back to that specificity. It comes back to uh, that efficiency that you get having chips purpose-built to run the algorithms that you're serving to your customers. It doesn't mean the accelerated compute theme that NVIDIA talks about is going away or that they aren't still the king player. Um, but it does mean that Microsoft will make sure that they have chips, again, purpose-built for what they're trying to do. I think that whole Jensen joining stage, it was 
masterful on Microsoft's part to bring them on stage. Remind me of the when Apple announced iTunes for the Motorola Rocker and bringing, I think, that the time the Motorola CEO on stage with Steve Jobs. Obviously, Mike, uh, Apple's moving in a different direction. I don't think this is the same case where they're just going to knock them out. But I think the big picture here for me is that these big tech companies, the hyperscalers, want to do more silicon themselves. Microsoft referred to as silicon diversity. But either way you cut it, uh, NVIDIA's got more demand than they can keep up with. So that's one of the reasons why uh, we've uh, recently bought uh, a Taiwanese semi TSM to kind of play up with some of that demand. Uh, the other parts that have it, it kind of impacted on the Ignite event was related to just kind of more partnerships. And they also ended with a kind of this little teaser video about using co-pilot voice with what looked like HoloLens. They showed some people doing like an industrial kind of technical work and using like an updated version of HoloLens it looked like. And uh, that caught my attention because, of course, I'm a big believer in spatial computing and what Apple's doing. And I thought, here we go. Like now Microsoft is on board with this. Like logically, we've always sort of assumed, when we think back to like Siri, for example, that voice is sort of the most natural interface. And I think the problem with voice historically is that we were talking to machines that weren't really that intelligent. You know, we're talking a really low level uh machines that could understand like basic commands. But if you think about what GPT has kind of opened up to be able to converse with a human in the, the dynamic range of basically asking it any question that you might ask it, that means that there is this sort of underlying understanding that Siri, you know, never had that Google assistant never had. And that to me is what's different. Now, if you bring that natural language, you bring that voice control, and you pair that to these foundational large language models, that's an exciting new world where you do have a machine that can understand a very wide range of requests and then ultimately act on them. And the, but the integration of having a wearable, a hardware around this, a headset, and kind of integrating with that, that seems to me like a pretty big unlock. I mean, that's 2016 is when HoloLens came out and we were following this. We bought HoloLens as a developer kit back in the day and we're playing around with it. But I feel like that vision is finally coming into focus. It is. And I mean, you see other products like the Humane Pin. We talked about that before, you know, that just launched this week. Uh, same thing. I think the same idea, this idea of how can you uh, pair the understanding of the world that these LLMs bring with different interfaces, whether it might be voice, whether it might be gestures or other things, obviously they're gonna be incorporated in these devices too. Um, I think it does, I, I agree with you, I think it does unlock another layer. As it relates to spatial computing and AR, I think it's still, uh, the question for me is still, what is that really killer use case? We still have not seen that yet. And I think that's what we need to answer before that really breaks out. Initial killer use case is a spatial video, but that's gonna be, just the starting point. We'll talk more about that undoubtedly as we get ready for uh, Vision Pro's launch likely in March of next year. We'll shift to the next topic, which is OpenAI pausing JetPT Plus signups after their dev day here. I was able to sign up about two hours before they did the pause on it, and sounds like things were off to a little bit of a, a rocky start when it came to some of the reliability. I think what it was uh, from from my personal experience, at least, is 
a lot of people were probably trying to create GPTs. So obviously GPTs were one of the other big announcements uh, a week before, before the Microsoft conference, OpenAI's Dev Day. And GPTs let you basically sort of custom tune your own chatbot. GPT um, I've created, Exactly, exactly. Um, so I've created a handful of them and it's super easy to do. You can, you can make it as simple or as complex as you want. Yeah, let me, um, let me pause you there, Doug, is that to me is it took some of those technical and it is super easy. That, that's the best way to describe it, but keep going. Yeah, you just give it some basic guardrails or, or parameters and some data and you've got, you've got kind of a custom tuned GPT and it can be minutes, literally minutes if you haven't tried it yet. And I think probably what was happening was so many people were trying and creating these GPTs and then sharing them. You know, I posted mine online in a few places. Uh, it's basically a version of what I call intelligent alpha, a stock picking GPT. Um, and what I saw even using it myself was it would break very frequently. And it wasn't because there was an issue with how I created the GPT. It was because uh, OpenAI servers were apparently getting overloaded. And I think a lot of other people were having sort of the same experience. And so what we saw from Sam Altman was, you know, look, it looked, it felt like the user experience was not living up to what they wanted it to be because of some of these reliability issues. I think bigger picture though, it just speaks to what we're talking about before with Microsoft. I mean, infrastructure, NVIDIA, you know, there's still a right. huge need for more compute here and that's not going to go anyway, uh, anytime soon. As a reminder, uh, Altman did talk about a hundred million weekly active GPT users. Probably a billion people have tried it, but that's a powerful number. And I'm sure that number's going up here given what they've recently announced with GPT builder. And so uh, we will uh, continue to, to keep track. I'm just, I'll just add, you talked about what you use it for. I built one that helps with editing uh, notes and also giving recommendations for titles and key takeaway points from some of the notes that we published. And then about two minutes later, I built another GPT that answers questions about the transition from electric to, or from gas to electric, which gets us to our final topic today, which Redwood Materials, they're a private company. Last valuation was just over $4 billion. This of course is J.B. Strobel's uh, battery recycling and components company. Uh, Deepwater is invested in this company, and they announced a deal with Toyota, where Toyota is going to be purchasing some of the recycled materials, anode, cathode, and some of the metals from Redwood to put into new batteries that they're producing in their North Carolina battery facility that they're starting to build. And this is unique because they've have Redwood has a previous relationship with Toyota to recycle Prius batteries. Some of those have been around for 20 plus years. And so this is a true life cycle of a battery relationship they have. First company uh, that uh, I'm aware of, that Redwood's aware of, to, to do this. And just kind of an exciting confirmation, which one of the reasons why we like the company, is just this ability to be kind of this, this cycle, true cycle of, uh, of, of managing and optimizing the battery life. And I think for EVs to really meet their full potential, we have to have recycling as part of that component. You know, if, if the long-term story with EVs is we're still pulling lithium and cobalt out of the ground, you know, I think, I think the skeptics would be fair to argue, is this really any better and any more sustainable than using uh, gasoline and petroleum we pull out of the ground? And so I think this is a critical component and it's still early in the recycling uh, paradigm. But companies like Redwood are are a critical 
uh, I think, cog in the long-term EV story. It makes sense that Toyota was this partner because what they've done with Redwood at the Prius, there was one piece of me that a little bit surprised because I think Toyota has been one of the companies that has been most um, maybe level-headed about the pace of transition from gas to electric and not even saying that we're necessarily going to go to electric, that we may go to other forms, whether it's uh, solar vehicles or hydrogen-powered vehicles. And so that that kind of caught my attention. But uh, I think that the bigger picture is, from my perspective, is that first this 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 loop that effectively, this uh, manufacturing loop that Redwood has created, it's evidenced by the relationship with Toyota and, and separately is despite all the negativity we've heard about EVs recently, the trend is still moving in that direction. You know, I think Toyota too, I mean, you could think of them obviously as the leaders in hybrids. I mean, they were really the company right. who put hybrids on the map. And so even though they don't have uh, maybe a strong lead or good heritage in, in fully electric vehicles right now, I think they have a great heritage in terms of being thoughtful about how do we incorporate electric as a power source in the vehicles. Right on. Score one for Toyota and Redwood and score another episode for Doug and I at Deep Tech 315. And we'll see you next week.